Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary. And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we're not even going to discuss that opening. <laughs> Someday I'll fix it. Maybe that'll be my resolution for 2023. We will figure out how to edit that. <clears throat> I, it's possible that our guest today can help me with that. She's clearly much more tech savvy than I am. She's got a super fascinating website and Instagram account, and she might be my person. Um, as a weird segue into that, I'm going to read you her bio because we have been working with uh, Lillian Cotter, who's a former guest. She's our marketing person. She said she created this beautiful guest guide, which we send out. And our guest today, Jody, actually followed it, which is not a criticism of our past guests. But she sent us her bio. So I'm going to read it because it's a great bio. Jody Ventura is an empowered sobriety coach and life coach and founder of the Sobriety Shift Methodology. She coaches women at all stages of the sobriety journey, getting sober, staying sober, and empowered sobriety. Jody has been sober since October 2015 and is on a mission to help women be their best self in all areas, confidently go after their dreams, and create a life that's bigger than the bottle. Her methodology is based on vision, empowerment, forgiveness, curiosity, rewiring the mind, thought work, and falling in love with sobriety. So how exciting is that? That's Please cool. join us in welcoming Jody Ventura. Good morning, Jody. Hey, Jody. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We're Hi. well too. Thank oh, you. Um, I were talking before we went live that you're in Florida, but you're in the safe part of Florida. Yes. Yeah. Our yeah. neighborhood is okay. Yeah. It's a newer development. So I think they were, they had hurricanes in mind and making sure that we were okay. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, what's the point of new technology if you're not going to use it? Yeah, right. Stand up against wind and rain. So that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Jody, you have this, this new relationship with sobriety. I mean, six years is a long time, but you've not been sober for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So congratulations yes, on congratulations. that. First of all, your sobriety is just a little bit longer than Maz's. Tell us about your there to here. What got you from wherever you want to start to getting to the point where today you're not only sober, but you're helping other people get sober? Yeah, yeah. Well, tomorrow will actually be seven years of sobriety, which is so wild. That's fantastic. Well done. Yeah, it's kind of mind blowing to think I have not had a single drop of alcohol in almost seven years, which is which is crazy to to think about. Like almost seven years ago, um, and even before that, you know, I began drinking in college. It was very normalized. It was the normal thing to do. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Yeah. And I, I had this mindset. I thought, well, once I graduate, I'll stop blacking out. I won't be drinking like a crazy person. It'll just be normal. More, I'll be a more professional person. Hmm. It just didn't happen. It followed me. Those patterns were very much ingrained in me. Um, and so I continued to drink and black out all the time. Um, it was essentially the most fun thing that I could do on yeah. my own. Um, it helped me with boredom. 
loneliness. I didn't have any like skills or tools. When you spend seven years of your life, bless you. Um, you know, I smoked weed a lot. So it was just like, I, it was either I was high or I was drunk. So I was just like numb all the time. Um, you don't develop coping skills. You don't know who you are. And so when it got to the point where I realized I didn't really see my life going anywhere, I wanted to end my life. I didn't see it. Basically, I didn't see myself moving forward. Um, I knew that I had to do something different. And I did not want to do anything different. I wanted to moderate. Mm -hmm. I wanted to keep it in my life. I wanted to be normal. I did not want to be different. And then I decided I just couldn't do it anymore. I knew deep down, like moderation was not going to be for me. It was too late. Yeah. Oh. So, so Jody, can I ask, a, interrupt you and ask a question? Because yes. we talk about this a lot. Dr. Mary did not specifically choose to get sober, to get started. He was in a, yeah. um, he had a medical situation that sent him to the hospital. And so he, he got sober not against your will, but in spite of himself, yes. let's put it that yeah, way. That's a good way of saying it. You made the decision yeah. to do this. I'm so, um, I have so much regard for all people who get sober, but for people who make the decision of their own accord and then do it, how in the world did you do that? Um, <laughs> honestly, those first three days, those first 72 hours, I don't know what happened. I was like in a blackout, but not in a blackout. Yeah. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's where Maz was too. Yeah. Yeah. And as much as I say, for me, it feels very empowering to say, I decided this, I chose this because on some level we do, right? Like everyone chooses. Um, but I think you just get, there's a saying in AA, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you're not seeing that different result, you just get to the point where there are no more benefits or what I call them like secondary gains to continuing to drink. You just realize there's more of a benefit to doing something different. And so that's essentially what happened. Yeah. That's really, really, uh, congratulations. Oh, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a big deal to do it on your own. And I think it's really important to point out from my limited exposure of seeing one person go through withdrawal, most people should not do that outside of a pretty safe environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. You don't remember what happened. Maz doesn't remember what happened. I remember what happened and I could not have managed that at home with him. So just yeah. you are watching this and feeling like, boy, I think it's time don't just decide, well, I'll just be home this weekend and make this work. You you mm -hmm. might need some additional help. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I will say I wasn't like physically addicted. It did feel like that at times. So like it was safe for me to do that on my own. Okay. And I've seen people who it's it's not safe. They do need to be in a hospital under medical yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you got sober. Mm -hmm. And when did the sobriety shift come into play? How did that evolve for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I started coaching about three years ago. So that was about four years into my sobriety journey. So I spent the first year or two getting to know myself, getting used to being sober, staying sober, really creating the person that I wanted to be. Um, and then I got to a point where I decided I'm ready to help people. And so that's where coaching came into play. I was looking into being a therapist. I remember being at a 
a Tony Robbins event and I was talking to this guy that was there and he's like, well, have you ever thought about being a life coach? I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, I've never even heard of that. So I started to, to explore what that was and I decided recovery coaching and life coaching was going to be my next step to be able to give back to other people because ultimately it crushed me to see people experiencing alcohol abuse, drug abuse, addiction, and feeling so down on themselves in that experience. And then making this brave and bold decision to be sober and then drowning in the shame, blame, and guilt and staying for so long. And in my book, I'm just like, nope, that's not where we stay. We can be there as part of our process. We don't come out of the gates in sobriety and we're like, yes, I'm sober and I'm gonna tell everyone. but eventually getting to this place that I, I refer to as empowered sobriety and feeling really proud, forgiving yourself and living, living a free life, no longer bogged down by this experience that you had in your past. Yeah. So did you, did you lean on friends? Did you try AA? How, I mean, how did you initially get sober? Yeah. Yeah. My path to sobriety was really interesting. I actually started by listening to podcasts. And so that was just kind of something that I did on my own. I identified with other people's stories and slowly came to the realization that like we had so many things in common, even though so many things were different. Um, I went into therapy and it actually took two months of me being in therapy, even openly admitting at the time I identified as an alcoholic, um, admitting that I was an alcoholic and continuing to drink, trying to make moderation work. And then you know, seven years ago, I decided I couldn't do it anymore. Um, Kind of stuck with those two things for a while, eventually went into AA for about a year and a half, got a sponsor, did the steps. And then I decided I trusted myself. I was ready to move forward. Um, And I was ready to be on my own, which is like super crazy. That's not people say like, don't continue to do this on your own. Don't leave AA, don't leave your programs. But I really felt that I I was ready, especially the more that I learned about alcohol and how how it actually affects everyone. Mm -hmm. I just, I was able to leave. Yeah. And then that's where I started my coaching business. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think the same way there are so many commonalities, commonalities to addiction and yet so many differences because it comes to each person in a different way. Mm -hmm. Also the same with sobriety. Mm-hmm. So to say to someone, well, if you don't stay in a program, you won't stay sober. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily true. I mean, we can't make assumptions that are that all addicts are, all people in sobriety are. We we can't say that. And so I I have a lot of um respect for you for for doing the work that you needed to do for you mm-hmm. and then deciding this isn't serving me anymore or I don't need this piece anymore. And setting it down. I think there's, um, hmm, how can I say this without sounding judgmental? I think that sometimes programs can end up being an unnecessary crutch because people are afraid to see if they can move into a different world. Maz talks about, and I'll set it up and then you can tell the story. The guy who said, don't use AA the way you used alcohol to miss your life. Yeah. I mean, so I was, I was probably at five months sober mm-hmm. and we got invited to a dinner party and it was on a Friday evening 
And Friday evenings, I go to AA meetings. Mm -hmm. So I actually felt guilty about missing an AA meeting. So I brought it up the Friday before. And this very old wise guy, his name was Sam. Um, he was a lawyer. He was just about, he retired and he moved to Arizona like most people from North Dakota do <laughs> when they retire. If I'm out of here, <laughs> tell me this. He said, you know what? How long were you drinking? I said, well, you know, about seven or eight years, really, with the denial and everything. And he said, and how much of your life and your family did you miss in that seven and eight years? And I was being completely honest. And I said, well, kind of most of it. Mm. Said, well, don't miss your life sitting in an AA meeting. Mm. I love that perspective. That's so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's the same perspective, perhaps, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the same kind of idea that you may have come to. Yeah. It, serves a, it serves a really powerful purpose for a lot of people. But it can become the the thing that you hold on to, the way people hold on to alcohol before they decide to let it go. So I just really appreciate that. I want to put this comment up, Jody. Congratulations on your self-fix. That's amazing. You look uh -huh. wonderful, and Maz looks wonderful. <laughs> Are you aware of looking different than when you were in your struggle? You must feel so much more vibrant, which is how you appear it would be helpful to people working with you, I would think. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was very puffy. <laughs> dry. Yeah, it was just like all of the moisture was sucked out of me. Um, and it was very obvious that there was something wrong. And people would just ask me all the time, what's wrong? Are you okay? Yeah. Um, and no, I wasn't, but how could I tell anyone? I didn't want anyone to know how much I was drinking, what was actually going on. So you just kind of put on a pretty face, or at least you pretend you, you try to. Right. Yeah. 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 It, that's an interesting point because I always say Maz looked like a waterbed. Like he had a puffiness that you felt like too, yeah. you could kind of push into. I mean, it just, he stopped looking at all like himself. Um, and so I, I know that that is not singular to him. Um, it's, it's a terrible side effect. Jody, did you get that moment when you saw pictures of yourself, like two years before you got sober and you sit there and go, <laughs> did that happen to you? <laughs> I wouldn't say like two years before I was just, I would say I was aware that something wasn't right for about a year. Hmm but I was very much in denial and trying to make everything okay. So yeah. I didn't allow myself to have that like, oh my gosh, moment, there's something wrong. Because if I did allow myself to have that moment, then I would have to do something different. So it was just yeah. denial, denial, denial. So this morning I was looking at your latest Instagram reel and you referenced the phrase, and I'm sorry, secondary. Secondary gain. Mm -hmm. Secondary gain. Okay, so you were talking about that, and I feel like this is a sort of an interesting segue into that because I think I think that's what you're referencing. If you acknowledge what's real, then you have to look at what are my what's the secondary option or the secondary um, ramification of acknowledging what's real. So talk about that secondary gain piece because I found that that phrase and the way you talked about it really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm also certified in uh, neuro-linguistic programming. And so as an NLP practitioner, um, when we're helping our clients create change and they're not able to create that change, we want to look at 
what are the benefits of that person staying the same or essentially not changing? So this is such a helpful concept with my clients because they come to me in so much shame, blame, and guilt and so much resentment towards themselves. Why can I not stop drinking? Or why did it take me so long to stop drinking? Well, we're going to explore why so that you can create that compassion and empathy for yourself. And so when we're having trouble creating change, we want to look at what are the benefits for us of staying the same, even though, and this is something that like twists your brain. And like my first response or the first response from clients is there are no benefits to continuing drinking. It's awful. It's terrible. And I'm like, yes. And let's dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And so in, you know, like the example that I used um, in the real is taking a, a two people who are in a relationship. One person decides to get sober, but they're having trouble getting sober. And the reason why sometimes is because they want to continue to drink with their partner. The secondary gain for them is that nothing in the relationship really has to change. They get to continue to drink with their partner. That gets to stay the same, even though they are deeply suffering because of that drinking. Now we create the change. That secondary gain is no longer a gain. Once we believe and understand that staying the same, it just doesn't have any more benefits. We don't believe that there is that benefit anymore. And so we stop doing that thing and we create the change. Wow. It's um, <clears throat> it's really powerful. We have talked about this a lot, but at one of the visiting hours that I came to see Maz at, we were sitting at a table with a much, much, much younger guy who happened to be Maz's roommate in rehab. And he was talking to, I assume his mother, and he was close to being um, released. And he said to her, I don't know how I'm gonna stay sober because my girlfriend is at home and she's still drinking and using. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, not to toot my own horn, but I didn't fall into alcoholism. And so when Maz came home, the w- that was not something that yeah. we had done together. Mm-hmm. So something we had to unlearn to do together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that has to be, be at least an assistant. I, it's certainly not the reason he stayed sober, but I can't imagine the challenge to, to overcoming anything and then going back into the environment where it is exactly as it was and trying to be different in that environment. Yeah, exactly. And and sometimes the relationships end. So continuing to drink is essentially prolonging what people kind of know in their gut is the inevitable, is, is the breakup. So it's it's a form of, um, when we continue to drink, it's a form of safety. Mm-hmm. It's not really safe, but it feels emotionally in our nervous system, it feels safe for us to continue to do that because the other option doesn't feel safe yet. It doesn't feel as beneficial. Would you... I've never heard anybody say it exactly like that, but do you agree with that? I'm not, I agree with you, but I'm not the one who had to make the decision. Did it feel safer to stay drinking than to try to not drink? Yes. Yeah. That's, I I don't know if I subconsciously, I thought, well, I don't want to go through withdrawal or I think mostly it was the fact that I still believed that there was actually nothing wrong. So Mm -hmm. why would I even harbor that thought or why is why do why is periodically do people bring it up because mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with me. fine 
There was yeah. a lot of that, but I, I also fear involved. Well, I'm curious, Jody, if you, um, how do you help people work through that? Either the um, people will find out because I, you know I'll, I'll be out at happy hour and I'll have to make a different decision, or my relationship won't survive it, or um, yeah, I mean, whatever, whatever the fear of getting sober is, maybe I can't do it. How do you help women work through that piece? Because that feels like a huge hurdle that until you can address that fear, you really probably can't even entertain sobriety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk a lot about not feeling safe getting sober because that's that's just that's fear right it just doesn't feel safe and so when people come to work with me one of the first things that we do is um explore why they are drinking essentially like why alcohol has become the solution mm. and again that's another moment where they're like it's not the solution yes it is otherwise you wouldn't be doing it we don't do things unless we experience some sort of benefit, even if it feels like this sick and twisted benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we start workshopping. It's kind of like this trial and error process of what other tool in your toolbox, if alcohol is in your toolbox right now, and we can add in other tools, what might that tool be that will get you the same result, if not better than alcohol? Yeah. So then our brain starts to see, oh my gosh, there's more options. There's possibility here that feels safer for me. Yeah. And as far as, you know, helping people say no or be out in public and be interacting with people they used to drink with, we do a lot of role playing. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm not easy. I, I don't go easy on them because I, I want them to face their worst fear of like, so did you have a problem? What happened? How are you going to answer that question? And it's always, it's never about what you say. It's how you say it. I'm a firm believer in it's the energy that you bring. Mm. And it takes time to get there because in the beginning, like we're probably sitting there like twiddling our thumbs, like not wanting to make eye contact. That's what I do with my clients is getting them to a point where they can look someone in the eye, chin up, look you straight in the eye and like, I don't drink. And I feel really proud of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so anyway, we do a lot of role playing to get people to that point where they feel confident answering that question instead of hiding out in their sobriety. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard you admit that you were an, an alcoholic and it was when we were in England. So you'd been February, March, April, May, June, July, August, whatever, seven months sober mm -hmm. we were with a, one of his very best friends at a pub. Yeah. And Derek said, I'll buy the first round. And Maz said, okay, I'll have a non-alcoholic beer. And Derek said, what? Not, not in a funny way, just in a way you would say with someone that you had a history of socially drinking with. Yeah. And he said, why? And Maz said, um, well, because I'm an alcoholic and I'm enjoying sobriety. And you're right. It was not a chin up straight at him. I mean, there was some fear of judgment. There was some uncertainty about it. Mm -hmm. And here's the most incredible thing. This friend who uh, we've been friends for 40 years. Yeah. Longer. <laughs> yeah. This, this friend went, uh, got me a glass of wine because I do still drink occasionally. 
got himself whatever he was drinking, got Maz a non-alcoholic beer, sat down and said, you know what? I've been really suffering with depression. Yeah. And it opened a door. He never would have brought that up had we all been out to just drink. Yeah. Uh, it was they, incredible. He and, told me later on as well that he was worried coming to see me. We hadn't seen each other in a few years. That he'd have to put on a brave face. And when he's found out that his 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 oldest and dearest friend wasn't perfect, it made him feel better. Not yeah. in a way that he can open up and say, hey, Great, I'm I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect, so that's brilliant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and the now when you talk about it, there is no trepidation, there is no um, discomfort or shame. It's mm -hmm. the same way I I no longer talk about having had a baby unmarried with any trepidation or shame. You mm -hmm. want to judge me? Happy day to you. Judge away, I don't care. I, I mean, I think we have to. If we're lucky, we get to that point with the, the ways that life has kind of banged us up mm -hmm. and we've survived it. Yeah, yes. That's ultimately what it comes down to is you've survived something really hard. Mm -hmm. Why not be proud of that? There's nothing to be ashamed of. No. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's perfectly okay if people are not there yet. It's part of the process. And that's um, kind of where I created the stages of sobriety. And so there's, I like, I like to say there's three stages. This is not like a universal truth, but this is just kind of a great way for me to describe my process to people. There's the getting sober stage, get it, or staying sober and empowered sobriety. So getting sober is, you know, you're getting out of the drinking cycle. You're trying to stop drinking. Then the second stage is being sober, bless you. No, you're good. Um, and that's just where we're getting used to being sober. We're processing everything that happened. We're typically not out loud and proud, feeling really confident about this decision. We're getting to know ourselves. We're creating who we want to be. And then the last stage is empowered sobriety. And that's where what you're speaking at, where you can just talk about it freely. You've done the forgiveness work. You've done the healing work. And you feel comfortable talking about it. We've let go of most of the shame, if not all. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, again, so often, particularly when we talk with coaches and people who are actively working to help other people on their own journey, <laughs> this is not work just for alcoholics and addicts. <clears throat> this is work for human beings. Yeah. I want to meet the person who doesn't feel shame about something. Yeah. I want to sure. meet that person. And what I want to say to them is, what if you could just let that shame go? What if shame, whatever you did, is greater than whatever you did? And so it's not serving you to live under the weight of that shame. Yeah, yeah. Even if what happened, what you experienced isn't sunshine and roses, and like most people would agree, it's not something to be proud of. Is it helpful? Is it useful? to hold on to it and to view it in that lens. No. It's, no. Is it serving you and is it serving anyone else? And I I just have to think the answer is almost always no. If you can really dig into the core of it, mm -hmm. um, it what, what purpose does shame actually serve? Yeah, yeah. It yeah. never brings us to our fullness. It never brings us to forgiveness and acceptance and um, joy, 
And it always keeps us small and hidden and not living to, to the fullness of who we can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even getting curious and exploring, like, what are the secondary gains of you holding on to the shame? What are the benefits? And sometimes it's, I'm terrified of who I might become or how people might perceive me without holding on to that. And yeah. that's scary. Shockingly, I think it becomes a comfortable mantle that mm -hmm. there. Well, I'm the one who got pregnant unmarried. I'm the one who became an alcoholic. I'm the one who didn't pay my taxes and lost our house. Whatever, whatever your shame is, mm -hmm. if you decide that that is how you're known and that's how people define you, mm -hmm. then even if it's terrible, there, there is comfort in knowing that, well, this is just how I show up yeah. and this is how people see me. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. That's really sad. Yeah, it becomes like our new baseline. Yeah. 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 So Jody, if you could give our audience one piece of advice, somebody, somebody watching who thinks or knows that they have a problem and they want to do something different, but they're afraid to make that first step. What's what's the first step you would offer to them? What what do you say to them in the 60 minute call that they could have with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, totally normal to be at that place where you know, you know something, there's something off with alcohol, there's something off in your life. Um, you probably know deep down something needs to change or your life is going to be better without it. That's terrifying. It's terrifying to think about. And don't sit in that terror on your own. Go and talk to someone who has been through it, who has what you want. They say that in AA. Um, and that's where my consultation calls are really, really awesome as I hold a very safe space for people to share where they are now, where they want to go. Let's identify what's in the way. Where's the gap? And then if it seems like it's a good fit to work together, we'll, you know, propose uh, what that might look like. But even if people don't move forward, it's 60 minutes to create hope and possibility. And just even being heard, getting that off your chest feels like such a huge, it's a huge weight lifted off your chest. So go talk to someone. Don't mm -hmm. sit there on your own. Or if that feels too big for you, do what I did. I listened to podcasts and I heard people's stories. No one knew what I was listening to. And I actually did that over the course of like three or four months. That started to move me forward. Yeah. I wasn't interacting with those people directly but I did feel like I was creating a relationship with them because they were being vulnerable with me, the listener. Mm -hmm. And then I felt that I could start to be vulnerable with myself and other people. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that mm -hmm. answer. That's really fantastic. That's a good one. Well, I, I feel like that's the perfect place to stop. So Jody's website is up, jodyventura.com. Um, if you are, I, I don't want to trivialize this, but if you are, um, a girly girl. Her website is so beautiful. It's so it's so pink and Florida, and it's got great fonts. It's I just I loved your website. The um, Barbie doll player in me was really really <laughs> your website. That is not to uh, dismiss the seriousness of the work or the seriousness of your um, training and background, but it's a really 
engaging, warm, welcoming, feminine sight. Um, and so if that if that resonates for you, Jody's all over social media. Um, go and spend some time on her site because nobody's ever going to know that you were there. If you're not yet ready to reach out, just go and read Jody's story um, and, and then take the steps that you need to take. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted my website to, to embody that like hope and the vision and like what's after, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it really, really does. Yes. It really does. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for joining Thanks, us, Jody. Jody. You've given Thank us you so much really lovely things to think about. And I know our audience will feel the same way. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Great to meet you yeah, and to spend this time you. with you. Yes, absolutely. Everybody else, thanks for joining us. We will see you next week. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L dot com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.